Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from the gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 21 to 27. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Fred. Good morning, church. Good to see you all today. Special shout out to all you out in the new and improved smoking area under the uh, tent. Glad you're here. And uh, we made it to October, which is crazy, huh? And by the way, isn't October a strange name for the 10th month of the year? (laughs) Feels like it should be the 8th. That clears that up, doesn't it? (laughs) Thank you, Bradley. And here we go. Last week, if you were with us, we kicked off our fall vision series, which we're calling The Whole Gospel, a both and faith in an either or world. And the reason that we're doing this series is because if Antioch is your church, then I want you to understand who we are and what we're all about as a community. I want you to be an active participant, not a passive spectator in the life of this church. And in order for that to happen, I think it's going to be really helpful for you to have a firm grasp on our mission and our vision that we believe God has given us. And so I want to do a little bit of recap just to catch us all up. Uh, Last week, I introduced to you a shape called the mandorla. And it means almond. And uh, the idea is that this shape is created in a Venn diagram when two circles overlap. Or as we said, in other words, it's the new reality that emerges when two things that were separated are brought together. Okay? So this is why the mandorla has been so frequently used in Christian art throughout the centuries. It helps communicate so much 
of what we believe as followers of Christ that requires us to hold two truths at the same time, meaning God is both three in one. Jesus is both human and divine. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. The mandorla helps us kind of capture some of that tension. And so last week I showed you this chart which is one of the ways I found helpful to explain kind of what our church is all about. And the idea is that if Antioch's can be faithful to our vision and mission, then we're going to kind of be a mandorla-shaped church that doesn't fit very nicely in any of the categories. And so um, what I proposed is that there's kind of two major streams in American Protestant Christianity at the moment. And on the left, you have what you might call theological liberalism. And on the right, uh, what you might call biblical fundamentalism. And each of these sides tends to emphasize or focus on different aspects of Christian faith and practice. Now, I still think this is a really helpful chart and paradigm, but... This last week, as I've thought about it more and reflected and had several meaningful conversations, I don't think that liberalism and fundamentalism are actually the clearest or most accurate labels for what we're talking about here. And so uh, I want to tell you why, with this caveat, I'm guessing that probably about 50% of you will not care about what I'm about to say, okay? And... (laughs) If you're not into geeking out about the nuanced disparities between the various streams of North American Protestantism, that's okay, all right? You don't need to. I don't blame you. Take the next five minutes, check your fantasy football team, and I'll call you back in a moment. But for those of you that are interested in this stuff, let me tell you quickly why I don't think liberalism or Protestant or fundamentalism are the best labels. Um, the first has to do with liberalism, obviously, is a word in our culture that is predominantly, if not exclusively, used in a political context, right? And so um, we're not talking about politics. We're trying to talk about theology here. And so I don't think liberalism actually is that helpful. And on the other side, fundamentalism, I also think, no longer means what it once meant. It once had to do with a basic set of beliefs um, or fundamentals that uh, a certain group of Christians would hold. And I think now what it really means is not so much what you believe, but how you believe what you believe. Okay? And so there's an author by the name of Dan White Jr. who lists seven marks of fundamentalism that can actually apply to someone of any persuasion or ideology. I think this is fascinating. He says, absolutism in belief, self-righteous in spirit, combative in dialogue, us versus them in orientation, demonizing other groups, political, p- policing ideological borders, and using shame to construct troll or ostracize. And so what's fascinating about this is that we now live in a world where there are fundamentalists both on the right and the left of every issue, right? Um, You can be a fundamentalist conservative or a fundamentalist liberal or anything else. And so that's not really what we're trying to talk about here either, so it's not helpful. So back to our chart. I want to modify our headings from fundamentalism and liberalism to evangelical and mainline. Now, these aren't perfect words either, but I think they are clearer and more accurate for describing the two dominant streams of Protestant Christianity in the West. And so these words just need a little bit of context real quickly. Mainline doesn't mean mainstream. Mainline refers primarily to those churches and organizations that are affiliated with the historic 
uh, Protestant denominations of Christianity. So for the most part, it's Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Church of Christ. Uh, these are denominations that typically have been around a long time. And for the most part, when you're driving through an average American city, these are the church buildings that are old and big and usually begin with something first, right? <laughs> this is true in most cities and including Bend. And so, um, again, oversimplification, overgeneralization, but in general, mainline Protestant churches tend to be more liberal in their theology and would be characterized more by the left side of our chart than the right. And then on the other side, we have evangelicalism, which obviously is also a word that has lots of baggage and political connotations these days, but I still think it's a helpful word. Um, and evangelicalism, just like mainline, is diverse, and not all churches look alike, but there are some common threads. First would be a very high view of the authority and inspiration of scripture and the emphasis on the need for personal conversion and a relationship with God. And so most evangelical churches, um, or, or I should say most like non-denominational churches um, would fall into the evangelical category along with most Baptist churches, Pentecostal, charismatic, um, and that sort of thing. So the Southern Baptist, Calvary Chapel, Foursquare, Assembly of God, uh, Hillsong, all of those and others kind of fit into this evangelical uh, category. Okay, so mainline evangelical, and of, source, of course you have all sorts of churches and organizations that don't fit nicely into either camp. Um, the historically black church in America, for example, doesn't fit nicely on here, and really neither do like the Mennonites or other Anabaptist groups. And then of course you have tons of uh, groups that do live somewhere in that space, right? Um, mainline Protestant churches that are more evangelical in their theology and vice versa. And so. It's not perfect, but I think it helps get us there. Um, so, okay, all of you that blacked out for the last five minutes, hopefully your roster's set, you're looking good, welcome back, and uh, we'll keep going. As I told you last week here at Antioch, our question is, what if we didn't have to choose one side or the other? Uh, what if we took a both-and approach to our faith rather than either-or? What if that rather than just a mainline or an evangelical, a liberal or conservative uh, gospel, one half of it, what if we were able to embrace and receive and practice and proclaim the whole gospel? What would that look like? That's what this series is about. Um, Last thing by way of recap, a both-and approach is not about a mushy middle, right? It's a th radical third way. The goal isn't centrism or neutrality on every single issues, issue. There will be plenty of times when faithfulness to Jesus requires us to hold a strong, hard position. Not every issue has two sides, but Taking a position is not the same thing as taking a side, okay? So Jesus isn't neutral, but he is impartial, which is why for us, blue and an orange don't make brown, blue and, us make, blue and orange make gold, something all together separate. Okay, so that's the recap. This morning, we move into kind of our first specific in the series, and it is the question of what is the gospel? What is the gospel? 
The passage Fred read for us this morning from Colossians 1 picks right up where we left off last week. And uh, if you remember, Colossians 1 really is kind of a foundational text for us as a community. It's where we get our vision statement, the reconciliation of all things. And so Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to the church in Colossae, and he is going off in chapter 1 about the holistic nature of Christ's redemptive work on the cross. He says that through Jesus, God is reconciling or restoring all things to himself. Or in other words, all that God has made, God is now making new. And then, in verse 23, where we were today, Paul concludes this section, he sums it up by saying, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Okay, so after going off about the reconciliation of all things, Paul wraps it all up by saying, this is the gospel. Everything I just told you, that's the gospel. And he says that this gospel's been proclaimed to every creature on earth, and this is the gospel to which he has given his life and become its servant. So whatever the gospel is to Paul is a very, very big deal. Now, the word gospel is one we're familiar with. It's used 76 times in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's euangelion, which means good news of great joy. And so today, when we hear the word gospel, we typically associate it with religion or spirituality. But originally, gospel was a journalistic term, usually applied to political situations. And so in the Greco-Roman world, a gospel was a announcement, breaking the news of something that had happened that would be good news for the hearers, okay? So for example, you're probably familiar with the traditional story about where the modern marathon comes from. Uh, 490 years before the time of Christ, the Persian Empire is invading this little town in Greece called Marathon. And everyone thinks that the Persians are just going to wipe it out, no problem, but somehow against the odds, the Greek soldiers were able to fend off the Persians, and the city was saved. Okay, so this is a really big deal and changes the whole landscape of, of the conflict. And so the Greeks need to get message from Marathon to Athens that they have won the battle. So they find a messenger to run from Marathon to Athens and to announce that, that they've won the battle. Anybody want to take a guess how far it is from Marathon to Athens? Anybody know? 26.2 miles, exactly. By the way, you know how uh, you can tell if somebody's run a marathon? Don't worry, they'll tell you. So, <laughs> anyways, the soldier runs the 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens, and when he gets there, he goes out and he announces the good news, the gospel. We have won. And then what happens? He dies. He drops dead. All right? The very first guy to run a marathon dies. And then later on, someone's like, you know what? We should make this a thing. <laughs> like, let's all get together. <laughs> we'll put on our short shorts. We'll run 26 miles and see if we die. Um, I don't know who thought that was a good idea. But the message that this runner carried was a gospel. And the name of that runner or herald was an evangelist. 
a bearer of good news that would bring great joy. And so gospel wasn't originally a religious word. It was a journalistic word about a political or historical announcement. Okay, so over, for over 2,000 years now, Christians have recognized that at the center of our faith is a gospel. The good news about something that has happened. We understand, all Christians, wherever you are, that at the center of Christian faith isn't good advice. That here's the things you need to do in order to be made right with God. At the center of the Christian faith is good news. Here's the thing that God has done to bring us close to him. So all Christians agree that at the center of Christianity is the gospel. But I don't think all Christians agree when it comes to what is that gospel. Okay, so if we plug the gospel into our mainline evangelical chart, then we might say that mainline Christianity tends to emphasize the gospel of Jesus, while evangelical Christianity tends to emphasize the gospel about Jesus. Again, generalizations, but I think it's helpful. Let me break these down real quick. When I say the gospel of Jesus, I'm talking about the gospel that Jesus himself preached. Jesus was a preacher, a teacher, and he had a gospel message that he proclaimed. I'll show you a couple places. In Mark's gospel, here's how Jesus launches his public ministry. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God or the gospel of God, and it's this. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news or the gospel. Okay, so Jesus declares a message that's to be good news of great joy, and that message is summarized that the kingdom of God has come near. This is the gospel of Jesus, the gospel according to Jesus. One more example in Luke's gospel. The very first time Jesus stands up to give a sermon, he simply reads from the book of Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news or the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, another example of the gospel according to Jesus that can be summarized that the kingdom of God has come to earth and that that kingdom is going to be subversive. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to confront the status quo of who's in and who's out, who's weak, who's strong, who has the power, who's vulnerable. And so Jesus comes with this kingdom. He says it's going to be good news to the poor because it's going to overthrow empirical powers of violence and greed. He's going to liberate the, the poor, alleviate suffering, administer justice, and make peace on earth. That's the gospel of Jesus. And it tends to be how mainline Protestants think about the gospel of Christianity. Now, in evangelical Christianity, there's typically 
less of a focus on the gospel of Jesus and more of a focus on the gospel about Jesus, meaning the gospel that Paul and the other apostles preached about who Jesus was, how he lived, what he did and accomplished in his death and resurrection. And so this is really the view that the gospel contains the basic set of biblical truths that someone would need to believe in order to become a follower of Jesus. Now there's lots of ways you could try to unpack kind of the gospel about Jesus. One of the most uh, prominent ones in evangelicalism is called Romans Road and some of you may be familiar with it, and it basically just uses the book of Romans and five specific verses that aren't just random verses, but kind of are to be understood as a story um, that builds on itself. And so let's walk through these five verses of the Roman road real quick. Number one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Number two, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Number three, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number four, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And number five, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? This is a very common way of talking about the gospel within evangelicalism. And it's straight from the scripture, and it's good, and it's true, and it's beautiful. But a more mainline Christian would hear that and say, yeah, that's great, but that's not the gospel. That's maybe the plan for salvation. But don't you think that a follower of Jesus, when they talk about the gospel, should talk about the gospel that Jesus himself preached? Wouldn't that be a little bit more fitting? Like Jesus didn't do Romans Road. He announced the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So on the left, you have the gospel of Jesus and on the right, the gospel about Jesus. This isn't something I came up with, by the way. This is stuff that theologians and religious scholars have been observing for years. Uh, I think the first time I came across this specifically was about 20 years ago uh, in a book called This Beautiful Mess by my friend and mentor Rick McKinley. And so let me uh, just read you a paragraph real quick that sums up uh, this, this whole problem. Sometimes it seems as though we find two gospels in the New Testament. The gospel of Jesus and the gospel about Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is usually taken to mean his announcement of the kingdom and the life he embodied in his loving actions towards the world. The gospel about Jesus refers to his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection through which we can receive the forgiveness of sin through our faith and repentance. The two Gospels even correlate to a schism in the church, with more liberal churches living the Gospel of Jesus and doing the good deeds of the kingdom, while more conservative churches preach the Gospel about Jesus, focusing on the personal salvation he offers to those who put their faith in him. Okay, so that lays it out uh, pretty clearly. So you might say, according to Rick, you... I could sum up the divide like this, that there's one version of the gospel that's all about the kingdom of God, and then there's another version of the gospel that's all about salvation. 
Okay? And like I said, lots of people, lots of pastors, theologians, biblical scholars have observed this stuff over the years. So if we took the thinking of someone like Timothy Keller, for example, and we applied it to this equation, then you might say that on the left, we have justice people, and on the right, we have justification people. Or one more example, if we took the thinking of Mark Sayers, the Australian uh, pastor and thinker, then we might apply his work to this and it would look like this. That the left wants the kingdom, but not the king, and the right wants the king, but not the kingdom. Very interesting. So here's the problem. Within Protestant Christianity, we have these two gospels. And each of them, on their own, is incomplete. What we want and what we're after is the whole gospel. We don't want to choose one side or the other. We want the whole thing. And that's what we find in Colossians 1. As we saw last week, verses 15 through 20 have this very zoomed out, big picture view of how Jesus is saving the world. And Paul says that in Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself. And then in verse 21, Paul zooms in and he focuses on how this message of reconciliation plays out in the lives of individual people. In verse 21, he says, once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Here's what I love about what Paul does here. Paul starts by talking about the reconciliation of all things this huge, limitless, cosmic vision of the gospel that all God has made, he is now making new. And then Paul zooms in and speaks specifically within the reconciliation of all things how God is reconciling humanity to himself. Or in other words, if God is making all things new, we are part of all things. He is restoring all things to himself, and that includes you, and that includes me. This is a much bigger gospel. This is not the kingdom of God versus salvation. This is not justice versus justification. This is both and. Jesus is saving the world, and he wants to save you. That's the kind of gospel I can get excited about. That's the kind of church we believe God has called us to be. Not either or, but both and the whole thing. Good news for the poor, good news for the oppressed, good news for the broken, and salvation for the lost, including you and including me. How does that work? We'll close with this. Paul says that once we were alienated from God and we lived as his enemies. Now, that's a little bit offensive, if we're honest, right? <laughs> and it may sound kind of like an extreme statement to make about you or me or any of us, but I think if we're honest, we all know what it feels like to be alienated from God. I love the way 
Wendell Berry talks about this. Wendell Berry is the farmer poet who's been called the sanest man in America. And he puts it like this. We all come from divorce. This is an age of divorce. Things that belong together have been taken apart. And you can't put it all back together again. Barry's not just talking about divorce and marriage. He's talking about the divorce of everything from everything. Right? If you think about the state of the world, the state of our families, our churches, our cities, our nations, things that belong together have been pulled apart. As humans, we are divorced from the earth and the environment. As people, we're divorced from each other because of our race or class or politics or religion. We're divorced from ourselves, no thanks to our screens and our addiction to stimulation and technology. And our biggest problem of all is that we're divorced from God. We live in an age of divorce. Things that belong together have been pulled apart. And Paul says, that's the state of humanity. That's the state of the world. But, he says, now God is reconciling all things, including us, back to himself. What's reconciliation? It's the opposite of divorce. It's when things that were separated are brought together. The holistic repair of severed relationships. And so the picture is, even though we were unfaithful to God, we cheated on God, we left God, we abandoned God, we divorced God, in Christ, he has absorbed our sin. And he has given us a new name and a new family and a new identity and a new destiny as his beloved people. And so the way Paul explains the significance of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is by starting with the fact that God is making all things new and then by reminding us that we are included in all things. It's not either or, it's both and. So when we talk about being a church that's about the whole gospel, this is what we're talking about. Believing and proclaiming a bigger and better gospel than the left-right divide could ever embody. A, a gospel more glorious than the world could ever imagine. Paul says that he is a servant of this gospel. He's given his entire life to it. Which may sound extreme, but the truth is, all of us have given our lives to one gospel or another. And if we haven't become servants of the gospel of Jesus, then we are serving another gospel. The gospel of self, the gospel of America, the gospel of wealth, the gospel of comfort, or power, or control, or whatever it is. There's no gospel like the Christian gospel. There's no savior like Jesus. Let's be a church that gives ourselves to this gospel that's good news for the whole world, including you and me. Amen. Amen.